Well, good morning. It is so good to be here with you this morning and just be able to open up God's word together and learn from it. So as many of you know, we're in the midst of a series called R and R, which is based around the question posed in Acts 2.37, where the disciples were asked, what shall we do then in light of what God has done on our behalf? And today we're going to be highlighting two R words, which is what we've been doing throughout this series, is picking just kind of representatory words, starting with R. Uh, And we're going to talk about how we should remain in Christ, even as we represent him to one another and to the world. We're to remain and represent. So for those of you with a Bible, will you turn with me to John chapter 13? Uh, That's John 13, and we're going to pick up in verse 33. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's no problem. It's printed on the back of your bulletin here, and it'll also be up on the screen behind me. So hear God's word this morning. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would be with us, that you would let your truth be known, that you would work in our hearts, that we would love you more, that we would understand your will more, and that we, as we strive to carry out this command to love one another, would give you the glory in all that we do. So Lord, let your spirit move this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So when you think of the word represent, what is it that you think of? I know my first reaction is to hear it pronounced like represent. Maybe if you're not as weird as I am, uh, you think of something like Congress, where we elect people to represent us in Washington, right? Like maybe you think of something in the business world, like a pharmaceutical rep. But no matter what you think of, the word represent has the idea of speaking for someone else ingrained in it. It's standing in someone else's place. Congressmen and women represent those who elected them, who sent them. Pharmaceutical reps are hired to be the public face for their company. And as Christians, we represent Christ. And we do so by loving 
one another. In verse 35 of our text this morning, Jesus says this explicitly. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And here at Orangewood, our vision is to be disciples advancing Christ's kingdom. And in light of this passage that we just read, it could be like saying, we want to be a group of people who truly love one another, advancing Christ's kingdom. Granted, that's a bit too long to be catchy, but that's what we're supposed to be, is we're supposed to be representatives of Christ, people who are exemplified by love. But we should ask, how do we do that? Like, how do we follow this command? What does it look like? And it's important to ask, too, like, what happens when we fail. So this morning, we're going to be looking at four things in this passage that we love because God loved us first. We see that the world loves to, like, to see us, and when they do that, they see Christ through our love. We see that God extends forgiveness when we don't love as we should, and that we see that Jesus is preparing a sure future for us, and that we can place our hope in that, even as we strive to love one another. So let's dive in. Our passage this morning details part of the conversation that Jesus had with the disciples in the upper room. And these are the last hours that Jesus had here on earth. And we pick up the story immediately after Judas left the group to put his plans of betrayal into action. And Jesus is speaking to the rest of the disciples, those he, who, he, who he dearly, dearly loves and who love him in return. And he says that he's giving them a new command, that they love one another. I don't know about y'all, but I I read this and I was like, wait, is that a new command? Like, I've heard that before. That was in the Gospel of Matthew, right? That Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And that the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. It sounds pretty similar to what he's saying here. So how is it new? And there's two ways in particular I'd like to cover this morning of how it's new because the newness doesn't reside in chronology. It's not new because it's never been seen before or heard before. Instead, the newness springs from Jesus bringing this command up to a whole new level. That's why it's new. Love here should be seen in a whole other light. You could say that it is exercised according to a new standard or that it's empowered and made possible by a new power. It should be exercised according to a new standard. Look back, if you will, at verse 34. It says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. There it is then, right? The command went from love your neighbor as yourself to love each other as I, Jesus, have loved you. It's intense. The benchmark for love went from how well you love yourself to how well Jesus loves. And honestly, like, I don't do well loving people at the myself level. I'm very often grumpy or selfish or inconsiderate. I fail at the lower bar for love so often. But how about you? How do you like work out loving others as yourself even? Let's take a moment to investigate. Like think through the last week. How have you loved yourself this last week? What have you pursued for yourself or your enjoyment or your own peace? And now think about how well you have loved others. How have you done? 
And even when you have served others, like let's say your roommate or parent or spouse asked you to clean up the dishes or straighten your room, what was your attitude like at that moment? Like, did you begrudgingly do what they asked? Just kind of like, well, here I am, sure. Or did you do it with a glad heart? Did you do it as a way to love them? Because this really is a moment where you can show love to one another in just a very simple way. It's a great moment to see life through their eyes and be like, you know what, I'm going to jump in and help out because it's going to please them. It's going to show them my love. If you're a kid and you're cleaning up your room, it's a great way to show parents love where they don't step on your Legos on the floor. Like, it's a good thing. So the question is, though, what is your heart doing? Were you ultimately self-serving or others-serving? Back in our passage this morning, again, we see Jesus raises that bar, right? He says to love others as he has loved us. But what does that look like? I mean, I know what it is to love myself, but what does it look like to love as Christ? So he set aside his glory. We know he came to earth. He took human form. He was persecuted. He suffered. And he died for the ungodly, for sinners, for people who were innately opposed to him and naturally hated him. Instead of just meeting out well-deserved justice for our rebellion, he chose to love us. John defines this love so well in 1 John 4. It says, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is the bar that Jesus sets. Sacrificial, selfless love. Love unto death. Love that radically prioritizes the needs and cares and souls of others. And it's a sidebar. I think it's important to note that modeling this type of love does not mean that you can't do something you enjoy or that you shouldn't just enjoy loving yourself in that way because it's in, you enjoy something and it's fun. God delights in our delight. He made us where we need rest. We need to kick back and laugh and be with friends and family. Even Ecclesiastes, which says like all is vanity, also says like, hey, go have a good meal with your family and enjoy them because it's good and God delights in that. So please don't hear that we need to only pursue endeavors that directly affect others. Or that like, we need to somehow monastically be devoted to other focus at all times. Instead, I'm saying that there should be a pattern of care present in our own lives. We should prioritize and foster our love towards others. We should engender our hearts to care for them and to love for them and to step out in that care for them. Think about 1 Corinthians 13. It's often like, referred to as the love chapter of the Bible, right? And this is what it says, starting in verse four. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trust, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. It's a lot. It's cool. And I don't do well at it. It's just the human condition. But that's what we can strive for. That's the new standard of love. It was a standard of love that Jesus perfectly practiced each and every day of his life. 
In fact, if you go back and insert Jesus into these verses, it reads like this. It says, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He doesn't boast. He isn't proud. He isn't rude or self-seeking. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Clearly it works to substitute Jesus. He and love are one and the same. He is the embodiment of love. And he is the standard of the love that he calls us as his disciples to exhibit today. That's not the only way, though, that this commandment given to us by Christ is new. It's also new because it's made possible by a new power. Because just a little bit later in the chapter um, of John 14, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, will come as a helper. That's a huge deal. God himself is coming to help us as we believe, as we walk, as we try to carry out the very command that he himself gave us to do. He tells us that we're to walk in a manner worthy, to love others, to follow him, and he will help. He enables. When was the last time you stopped to think about that? Other than just to be like, that is truth. Like, yeah, it's big. Let it sink in. Perhaps it would be a good thing to pray, to thank God for. He himself, the Holy Spirit, indwells you. If you're a believer, he helps to convict you. He helps you to grow in godliness, to help your prayer life. It's a big deal because as humans, we're kind of weak. We need help. And he willingly, lovingly grants it. Ultimately, we know that it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we as believers can love as Christ loved us. It's way too big of a task to do on our own. We just can't do it. But through the Holy Spirit and his power, we can. To be clear, I'm, I'm not saying that we'll always love perfectly. Instead, it's, it's about a trajectory. It's about the Holy Spirit empowering each and every one of us as believers and moving us on a trajectory that over time makes us more and more Christ-like. And that's not an instantaneous thing. It's not without failure. It's not without problems. But it is a sure trajectory. God has promised that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. It's a sure thing. And there are countless ways that this love of God that we are to show can play out in our lives. Many of y'all, I know, contribute to the deacon's fund that we have each time we take communion. Uh, We're going to have it today. And that helps people in our church family with pressing financial needs. You may not know who those people are, but the act of giving is a way of showing love, even though it is a love where they may not know you. You have still loved them well. Many of you love to partner with organizations and partners like Choices Women's Clinic or other partners that Orangewood has. And that's a great way to show love to other believers and to unbelievers alike. Even more of you are involved with community groups, which is a weekly or more time and opportunity to show love to one another. You get to know one another. You get to be involved in each other's lives and you can know the pressing needs that you have or that others have in the church and seek to love them and speak truth to them or care for their needs in practical ways. They're all great ways that I know you are involved with here at Orangewood. 
And if you're not already serving and loving others, it doesn't have to be in those ways, but in any ways, I'd say jump in. Find a place to serve and love and show this love that God has so richly blessed you with that you can just pass on. God will honor that. And I think also I would encourage you to think about what your heart is doing while you serve. Because actions alone are are good, right? Like they will start to engender the heart. But at the same time, it's the heart that makes the difference. And I think it brings to mind a story uh, by written by O. Henry in 1905 called The Gift of the Magi. And many of y'all are probably familiar with it. I know I first heard it from an adaptation by Adventures in Odyssey called The Gift of Madge and Guy. It's also a good one. Um, but it's a story about a couple who are just incredibly poor. And they have nothing left. And there's the woman, Della, has a gorgeous head of hair that is her pride and joy. And the man, Jim, has a beautiful heirloom pocket watch that he adores. And as the story begins, it's Christmas and they have no money, but they want so dearly to show their love for one another that they they go out separately to hunt for that perfect gift and to try to figure out how to get it. And Della sells her hair. She just chops it off to get money to buy something for Jim. And Jim goes out and he sells his pocket watch so that he can in turn buy something for her. And it works out horribly because Jim buys combs for Della's now non-existent hair, and she buys a really beautiful fob for his non-existent pocket watch. What is amazing, though, is the love that is there behind those gifts. They cared so deeply about one another that they willingly, even eagerly, gave up something that was the dearest to themselves because they loved the other person. And I think that really kind of gets at the picture of what it is, this sacrificial love. And ultimately, like it points back in a small way to the bigger picture of God. Because he too gave up something so precious and dear. He gave us his son. It wasn't hair, it wasn't a watch, it was his son. And he did it so that we wouldn't be lost in our sins, but that we would have eternal life with him. That's how much God loves each and every one of us. So look again at this new command to love one another as Christ loves us. The sacrificial, wholehearted, willing love. God is the instigator of the command. He's the standard for the love that we're to show. And he is the one who enables the love to come out of us in the first place. And what is the result of this? What is the result of loving one another? It is that the whole world will see the glory of God and see Christ in us. That is the result. Verse 35 of our passage reminds us that by this, by loving one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Our love for one another should reflect, or should I say, should represent our status as redeemed children of God. And just as we have each been forgiven so much, we, we should be known for compassion, for forbearance, for our empathy, for kindness. That's what people should see in the lives of believers. 
In fact, Francis Schaeffer once said that our love is the mark that Jesus gives to label a Christian, not just in one era or one locality, but at all times and in all places until Jesus returns. People see the truth of the gospel evidenced or not by the fruit of God in the lives of his followers, in our lives, in our fruit. I've had so many conversations through the years where I've been talking to someone about what I believe or just kind of like about Christianity or spirituality or whatever it is. And I feel like it's so common to hear like, yeah, I don't know, man. Christians, they're, they're hypocrites. Like they say one thing and they just totally do another. I think that's pretty common. And my guess is probably someone has said something similar to you. But the point is that the world is watching They see love and they're like, yes, that's authentic. Or they see the lack of it and they're like, that is hypocritical. What they see can either undergird and support the message of the gospel or it can undermine it and tear it down. So this might be a good time to ask, how are you doing with this? How are you doing with the command to love one another? How are we doing as a church? When you're out to dinner with your family. If someone asked the table next to you, what do you see? Would they see an example of Christ's love? Kids, do you think that unbelievers, just somebody in a store, would see the way you interact with your parents and see Christ's love? When you're talking with friends about the frustrations you have with church, with even here at Orangewood, because Believe it or not, like we don't do everything as we should all the time. The church is made of people. It's, it's fallible. But do you express the frustrations in a way that's helpful and loving and constructive or not? So in light of those questions, who's feeling like, yep, I got this love thing on lockdown. Like I represent. Anybody? For the rest of us, which is really all of us here, right? Like, if those questions are more condemning than they are comforting, what do we do? How do we change? I would say that the first thing we could do is pray. It's easy, right? Like, that sounds easy. Like, yeah, I just pray. We just talked about the Holy Spirit, though, being the power, the impetus behind our command to love. And he's our advocate and our helper. He's the one who helps us do that. And what's more, Romans 8 tells us that he's a absolutely integral part of prayer. He's an active partner helping us in our weakness. So my first question is just how does your prayer life look? Do you spend time there? Do you just kind of throw one up every once in a while? Prayer in reality is us talking with God. And I know that to like modern sensibilities and kind of just normal society, that can sound weird or just almost absurd, but it is true. God himself has laid out a way for us as just a person to come to him and breathe out our cares and our concerns and the weight of our sins and everything and be like, yeah, I want to follow you. I want to be loving. I want to care more for others. You can talk to God and God welcomes you to come to him. Indeed, he desires you to come to him. So what do you do, though, if your prayer life isn't great? How do you start? Because it's, it's hard. It's kind of like working out, right? You can't just go from never running to then, like, owning the Boston Marathon. Your body would die. 
It's kind of the same thing with prayer. You, you, it's a muscle. You have to work and it has to get stronger over time. So maybe think about setting up a specific time to pray each day that you know you can hit. Like if you have a 10-minute commute, maybe be like, five minutes of those? I'm just going to pray. That's a good place to start. Maybe think about something specific where you know each day, I'm going to pray for my family, that they would know Christ better, that they would see Christ in me, that they would have just a good day that's blessed by God, that they would be able to go forth in a good way. Um, Like those are all good things. So set up maybe a time, maybe a certain panoply of things to pray about. And then after a while of doing that, find more time. Maybe you could pray during the four minutes your French press is steeping in the morning. Um, I'm a morning person, as you can tell by all of my examples. There's also nighttime prayer. Um, But another way to work on your love is to ask for feedback from those who know you well. Like one of the best pieces of advice I ever received uh, was not directly, but it was from a conference, in a music conference I went to in 2013. And one of the speakers there was a guy named Bob Coughlin. He said that the most important thing he had done to just stay fresh and rejuvenated in his own Christian life was to talk with his wife and just to regularly ask her where he was falling short, what he could work on, if she had seen him be loving towards others or if he was not being loving towards others and just being grumpy. Like he added that it was super important, by the way, to ask with the expectation of her answering honestly and to not get defensive And to not just be like, well, let me explain why I did that. Um, Because that's not helpful. And he said that over time, his wife's honest feedback had given him a roadmap of his own actions. And he had been able to see his own sins and failures to love. And it provided just this great path to repentance and to godliness. I thought it was really good advice. So I started asking my own wife uh, the same questions really often. And Meredith was not so pleased by the frequency. Um, It kind of annoyed her. But ultimately, it was good advice. I was just doing it way too much, right? And so you can kind of find the pace of how much is good instead of just being like, how are we? Five minutes later, how are we? Five minutes later, how are we? Right, like it's not like that. Um, But maybe something similar would be good for y'all. Find someone who you trust. It doesn't have to be a spouse. It could be a parent, a friend, mentor. Ask them how you're doing in regards to loving others in light of this command. Ask them how you're doing just in life. Do they see the fruit of the Spirit? Where could they see it more? Are you being patient and kind and gentle? Those are important things to ask. And because the fact is that no one acts like we should. No one loves like we should. We just don't. We're people. But remember, like, a good kind of way to think through this Remember how we put Jesus for love in 1 Corinthians? As a self-examining tool, put I there where love is printed. I am patient. I am kind. I do not envy. I don't boast. I'm not proud or rude or self-seeking. Go on and on, right? It gets really uncomfortable really fast. The fact is that none of us live up to the call that Christ has made for us. But God calls us to it. He's given us the Holy Spirit as a helper. And even though we don't love others as we should, and we're sinful and we fall short, he has also given us a path to forgiveness. Would you look back at our passage with me one more time, starting in verse 36. And if you remember, right before Jesus told the disciples to love one another, he said that he would be going away and the disciples couldn't go with him. 
Then in verse 36, it says this. Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter here in this passage is distraught that Christ is leaving. And in that moment, he's like, what's going on? I am all in. And even if it means dying, Jesus, I would rather be with you. I am with you. And in a significant way here, I think he is showing that same love that Christ just commanded. He's like, I love you. I am all in. I want to be with you. But Jesus knows Peter's heart. He knows the future. He knows that no matter how well-intentioned Peter's expression of his love right now, that he is, in fact, going to deny him not once or twice, but three times that day. There's a lot to identify with right there. And it's astonishing to see how Jesus responds next. Because it's as if he looks up from just Peter and he looks at all the disciples and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled that he is going to go to prepare a place for them in heaven, and that they're going to be all together there. Jesus knows that Peter is going to lie about even knowing him that evening. And he's like, it's all good. I got you, man. I love you. You still have a place with me. So he says, once again, to Peter and all the other disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. There's some serious hope there. The fact is, friends, that if you are in Christ, if you have believed in him, absolutely nothing can separate you from his love and from the sure, spectacular, and eternal future that you have with him in heaven. That's our promise. Hear the promise here in Romans 8. It says, For I am convinced that neither life nor death, death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So friends, when you think about this command to love, when you think like, that's too much, I can't do it. I haven't done it today think about this, that there is a sure hope in the future from Christ, that he has given us God himself in the Holy Spirit to help you. Even when you fail, you have help. He has given us forgiveness of our sins so that when we fail, we can still know that we are redeemed because Christ's sacrifice is that strong. Your future is secure. And as you remain in Christ, You are free to step out and risk, right? Mark talked about that a few weeks ago. You can step out and try hard things because you know whose you are. As you remember God's love for us and for his church, you can step out in love. You can represent him well and strongly knowing that your future is sure. So do those things that will help you love others. Work and strive and practice and put on prayer, read scripture, dive in, love one another, serve one another. Be bold and represent. Represent Christ to the very best of your ability. And when you fail, trust him. 
Trust that nothing and no one can ever separate you from his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do love you to the best of our ability and to the best we know how. We know that we're human and that we fail. We know that we're broken. But ultimately, Lord, we're yours. And so we ask that you would keep us, that you would keep working on us, that you would hold true to your promise, that you will complete your work in us. And as the world looks on, I pray that you would just let them see you and nothing but you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.